Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to your next episode of the Squash Mind podcast series. And I welcome onto the show today, Jeff Hunt. I believe Jeff is one of the greatest players to have ever played the game and absolute squash royalty. He was the world number one from 1975 to 1980. He won the World Open four times and he won the British Open eight times. And that was just naming a few of his successes. He played for so many years. He was right at the forefront of the game when it turned from amateur to professional. And he talks a lot about some of his influences in the game. Players like Ken Hisco and Jonah Barrington, who really raised the bar for him to be able to push on to those next levels. So to be able to have Jeff on the show today for me is a real treat. And to be able to take this deep dive into the mind of arguably one of the greatest players of all time and someone who really put squash on the map, who was 
influential in making squash the, the boom it was in the 70s and the 80s. Jeff received both an MBE as well as an AM for his services to squash. He has been inducted into the World Squash Hall of Fame as well as the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. As a coach, he was the head of squash at the AIS, which is the Australian Institute of Sport, from 1985 to 2003, influencing and mentoring a whole raft and a new generation of elite-level Australian stars, such as Rodney and Brett Martin, Rodney Isle, Sarah Fitzgerald, and Anthony Ricketts, to name but a few. After this, he worked in Doha for eight years at the Aspire Academy. So as you can imagine, we had a lot to talk about. We took such a deep dive into his career, his early days, how he was able to train himself physically and really push himself. And it sounds like mental toughness and the ability to stay strong in the mind was a very natural asset for Jeff. He reflects on how he was able to really pay attention in the game, to be really aware of what was going on and to not be that hot-headed, to be really calm, really present, and really focused. We talk about some of his training and how this possibly led to some of his injuries later on in his career, and we also talk about the evolution of him going into coaching and what he saw when he joined the AIS um, with the emergence of sports psychologists, strength and conditioning coaches, because when he was playing, there wasn't much attention paid to either of these areas. It was a little bit of trial and error. So he reflects really nicely in this regard. He also talks about the emergence of Jahanga Khan. So Jahanga was a teenager, 17, 18 years old, when Jeff was in his mid-30s, 34, 35, and how they had some real battles along the way. But unfortunately, Jeff's career was cut short by a back injury that he was never able to get over. And at the time, it was really interesting to hear that Jeff thought he was at his fittest he had ever been, as well as his mind was really in tune with the game. So it would have been fascinating to see several years worth of Jeff and Jahanga going at it, but this wasn't to be, unfortunately. So rather than me trying to relay all these messages, please welcome to the show, Jeff Hunt. Jeff Hunt, welcome to the next episode of the Squash Mind podcast series. How are you keeping that? I'm doing very well, Jess. Thank you very much. I'm uh, enjoying life here and up in the, the Gold Coast in Australia. So it's been quite nice uh, through this terrible COVID period. <laughs> yeah, I know. It sounds, sounds like Australia is pretty, pretty far ahead with getting back on court and normality. Is, is it feeling pretty okay over there for you? We've been very lucky up in Queensland because we had a lockdown initially for five or six weeks. And then since that time, we haven't had major lockdowns. We've had, haven't been able to go into state a lot of the time, but life has returned as normal as it could be under the circumstances. So we've been very, very lucky. So we've had very few minimal cases in Queensland for, many, for a long time, excepting those that go into quarantine from overseas you know, when they come into the country, but coming back again, which is a bit of a a worry in itself. That's where all the cases come from now. No, nothing locally acquired, really. Yeah, I think I heard from someone as soon as soon as someone gets something like like it's crazy lockdown for those few people in that. So yeah, it sounds like you guys have it under control, which is which is really cool. And UK, yeah, we're we're still far behind, unfortunately, but catching up soon, I hope. Well, um, I see they've rolled out quite a few of the uh, the vaccinations there. We've only just started the vaccinations a, okay. a week ago, so. Okay. Oh, cool. Well, hopefully when, when this comes out, we'll all be a little bit more, more up to speed with things. But listen, maybe a good place to start and, and possibly a slightly selfish one. We were, we were having a chat leading up to this conversation. Um, 
I would love to hear about your trips to Rhodesia and especially the Salisbury Sports Club. That's that's where I personally um, traded the boards when I was a young squash player and, and you, you used to visit there. So, yeah, would you be able to reflect on your time going to Zim and Rhodesia back in the day? Oh, look, I, I had a fabulous time there. Owen Emsey was the one that was a promoter who ended up, you know, organising all the tournaments there through, obviously, help from people like uh, Chris Anderson and so on. So I moved there and I actually did a number of exhibition matches with Ken Hisco mm. in the early days around Zimbabwe as well. So we, we travelled extensively, you know, thousands of kilometres, I can tell you, and went to a number of different the local areas. We, we had a very, very good time. It was hard work. We played an exhibition series at one stage and hard work, but we enjoyed going there and, and I always enjoyed going there. I mean, the hospitality was, was second to none, really. We got looked after extremely well. Had some good players too, which made it interesting, you know, and... Uh, you know, I uh, remember the remember the club very well, and uh, you know, it's one of those things. You know, you never forget those those things. We used to stay in downtown in a hotel, normally, and sometimes we stayed with some were billeted out with various people, which were very kind to to, to put us up. So mm. it was a a good time. That was when it was associated the tournament with the, the you know the South African circuit. So we played throughout South Africa and then came to Zim for one of the tournaments in the circuit, which was. Uh, probably a bit special in a way and we managed to go to big falls and that and do a few things like that which is always nice yeah no i heard like back in the day when they used to get players like yourself and jonah coming along that that they used to look after you guys well get you up to the the houseboats in kreba did you ever visit the houseboats no i never did that but i certainly went to uh, the falls you know it was uh but i did you know we went around and, and ken and myself drove ourselves around it you know there were various other, you know, interesting places within the country, you know. So that was that was good. <laughs> oh, brilliant! And I, like, I don't know if you remember those Salisbury Court, where the main one we walk in and it was sunk down below the ground, and it had like a huge. Yep. And I think at the time, I, I could be corrected here, but I think when it was built, it had the the largest grandstand of seating. I think it was built in the fifties or something like that, or maybe sixties. And it was a crazy big uh, grandstand, and and I assume it used to get packed when you guys were there. Can you remember much about that? Oh, yeah, it was always, always got full for the, for the finals and things. I mean, very similar to in Melbourne where I lived, there was a court not dissimilar to that at Albert Park originally, which for, before its time, I suppose, those courts, they were cut away at the top and you were sort of looking yeah. down into it. And it was, it was good, a good vision and good, good considering we didn't have glass back walls in those days. Mm. No, and I definitely think you guys coming there, you know, the boom of squash, you know, it really helped. Um, well, my, my parents in particular, I remember my dad talking about it. And then that generation really spawned on the next few players, guys like Stuart Hailstone, Trevor Wilkinson came out of Zim. And I don't know if you remember those guys. They were obviously a bit younger than you, but no, I remember them. Yeah. I remember them very well. Yeah. yeah. What's um, uh, Steve Sharon, I think was one of the was one of the major players in the early days. Yeah, yeah and Mike Sharon actually became my coach. Mike so, Sharon, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think Steve was the dad. I think Mike was the son. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. There was Sorry. a cool connection there. So, yeah, no, I just just uh, love to relive the, the Zim squash days. And, yeah, at the time, you know, it, it spawned a, a generation of, of young Zim players. And, and, you know, me and my age group, we ended up doing pretty well in the World Junior teams and, you know, got to the quarterfinals. And we were this, just this ragtag little team of, of keen enthusiasts. But in reflection... I, I think, you know, you guys coming there and spawning such a, such a generation was definitely a part of it. But, um, but let's look at yourself a little bit more now. Um, so over the course of your career, you've had to compete with some real giants of the game, you know, players such as Jonah Barrington, Kwame Zaman, Jahanga Khan, to name but a few. Could we please reflect on some of these players and, and some of the others that you competed with? 
Oh, look, I was very fortunate enough to be involved with a number of great players over a long period, really, when you think about it now. Going back to the amateur days, and that's when I came across Jonah, you know, early on when I was still, still amateur. And um, we were very, as an Australian, we, were, we used to be sent away by the Australian team to compete. We went to England on a number of occasions. Ken Hisco was the spearhead of our team, and he was the one that sort of led the way for most of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, in women's game, obviously Heather Mackay used to go as well, but more individually rather than in a team. Uh, the women's wasn't quite as didn't have the team set up the same as what the men did at those days. But we went away, and of course, um, Jonah was an extremely uh, interesting character and did an enormous amount for squash and publicising squash in the UK. So I had great fun playing against him. At the time, though, it was quite uh, traumatic at time because he was a very <laughs> tough competitor. There was no love lost on the court, I can tell you that now. And a uh, very difficult customer to play. He was, um, you know, he was, he was such a, a good competitor and, you know, you, you, you had to be fit enough. And he was the one that virtually spurred me along and encouraged me. He didn't encourage me, but he was the one that made, made the reason I decided to get fit to play the game, really. Okay. So he was, he was my first real encounter. Uh, other than Ken Hisco was my, my idol in Australia and he was seven times Australian champion. So for me to get to number one, I had to try and compete and find a way around him. Yeah. And that was also difficult. Quite a good shot maker, Ken was and everything. Mm-hmm. So they're both, they're both different types of players. And of course, then you had some of the early Pakistani players like Gogi Aladdin, Hidi Jahan, who were very tough and very hard players to compete against as well. And had some really good sessions with them. And then finally... Probably Moe Bulakan and, and Kamazamam are the two that really through my year were the majority of, of, of the times that I had, particularly competing as a professional. That was, that was hard work coming up against those two boys all the time, you know, in competition. And Gogi Aladdin was also there to, <laughs> to make it even more difficult. So the three Pakistanis were, were, were my main rivals for a number of years, really. Yeah, so I'd like to zoom in a little bit more, maybe on, on some of the players or some of their their attributes. So you, you referred to Ken Hisco and Jonah. So what 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 was extremely tough about playing them? And I'm talking more mentally here. Like like what 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 did they bring to the game in regards to the mental side of the game? And then what do you think that also drove you on to work on your mind? I didn't really work on my mind, really. Um, I was driven because I wanted to try and win. And my whole philosophy when I first started playing squash, I remember when I was playing, we had a fellow called Doug Stevenson who was number one in Australia. Mm-hmm. I come up against him in a local tournament at the South Yarra Club when I was, you know, 14, I can't remember, 15 or something like that. I still went on the court there. I wasn't really expecting to win, but I, I thought, well, I'm going to give him as hard a game as I can possibly can. I'm going to try and see if I can you know, win it, win, and I'll try and win the first game. So I said about, I got to seven love in the first game. Okay. And that was about all I got. But the thing was, <laughs> I still gave myself a chance to do it. And I tried hard to, to do that. And I, and I was always going to give my all and try my best to, to win. So that's what, that's the way I used to tackle the game. I think, you know, you, you talk about, you know, we talk about being tough, but tough is just being uh, persistent and, and have a desire, you know, Mm. to keep going you know don't don't give up try your best and somehow or other um you've got to try sometimes you know you can get all flustered and things and that's a matter of being able to keep your mind on the job you mm. know not to give up at all and, and just keep at it and find a way around any difficult situations that occur and mm. in the modern area obviously you get some help from some of the sports psychologists who t- teach you some of the techniques to be able to deal with 
you know, if you're getting uptight on the court or if you're getting anxious and things, they're very valuable in teaching lessons. But in my day, I suppose a bit of trial and error to try and work out how best, you know, we could suit ourselves to get through there. Now, people like um, Hini Jahan, for example, he probably cost himself many, many matches because he, you know, used to get too cranky on the court, you know, at times. Beautiful player, hit the ball fabulously well, but unfortunately, he would lose matches often because he got too too cranky with the circumstances, and that that was one of the things that let him down really. Mm. So most of the others were probably, uh, I I think you know could handle the situation pretty well. And my feeling was to try and keep going until virtually my opponents gave it away at the end, and that used to happen at the very end. Often in yeah. some of the matches, I you know I could feel them just give up really towards the end, and that was satisfying to me because I was never going to give up and I think well it's nice when your opponent does it, it just makes that end of the end of the match really a bit easier to, to handle you know yeah you look you and you were known as that ridiculous determination you know great ball striker so did you think this concept if we call it a concept of mental toughness and res- and and sticking at it did this come naturally to you do you think it was do you think it was a natural trait that you just felt actually I can do this and I, I just keep working on it yeah, I, I gave myself a chance. I knew in my own mind that where my fa- I had a lot of failings in terms of I knew I could do better at certain things. I used to work very hard at that all the time. One of the failings I had in the early days was obviously fitness because I would lose to Jonah in matches and that was a lot to do with, with you know, he would keep me on the court for such a long time on the hot courts in England that I couldn't win. Mm-hmm. So that's my idea. With, he was the one that encouraged, he didn't encourage me, but he was the one, the reason why I started to get fit because I thought, if you know, that's an area of weakness that I had. I've got to try and work on the weak areas to try and get better. And I, and I uh, got my fitness up to a level where it didn't matter anymore. Now I know my fitness is good enough to last. It's a matter of now how I play the game and my, and the tactics and things is going to be the reason why I win or lose, you know? So yeah. that's how I used to think about it. You know, always try and work, work on the weak areas, but on the other hand, know what my weaknesses are and be able to work around them if I could, you know, if they're, mm. That's the way I used to feel feel about things, you know. And, and circumstances change on the court too. And you almost, yeah, I, I was fortunate enough that I could actually think reasonably clearly on the court quite often. When I was having trouble and I'm losing, I, I could be, I was able to evaluate what was going on. I could say, okay, now why am I, why am I losing? I'm losing because I'm behind. I'm, I'm being forced around. I'm not in the middle much. I've got to try and change it around. How am I going to do that? You know, you can either lob or you know hit it higher. Or harder, and you know, you can say find some way of getting around so I can now get the front position again. Volley a lot, you know. So volleying was a lot of my my game was based upon volleying, and that reason I developed the volley in my game was to try and beat Ken Hisco because that's what used to happen to me. I couldn't, you know, he was he was he was so good at at his shots and things. I was always behind him. How do I how do I uh, you know nullify that? And that one way we're doing that was to try and get a, in front of him. So I t- learned to volley as quickly as I could, get in position quickly. I was lucky to be relatively quick in the court, so it enabled me to get in position fast. But I looked for the ball. I was, I was looking to volley and get in front, and that's how I developed that style of a play. So a couple of things come out of that little um, reflection that you said there. So the first thing, the ability for you to think clearly under pressure, that that for me is something I want to investigate. And the second thing, which we might start with this one, um, your physical training was quite extreme. And, you know, Jonah then, you know, raised the benchmark and then you raised it as well. So you had this extreme physical training. Do you think this added to your mental toughness? 
Not really, okay. uh, not at all, because I, I had a match against Jonah when I wasn't really, I wouldn't say very fit. I was pretty fit because I was just doing a lot of squash playing. And that was the final of a British Open, which I lost two hours and 13 minutes. Wow. But I was absolutely exhausted at the end of it. Now, okay. that's my second ever longest match ever. And that's when I wasn't really, I would say, really fit. But I struggled for a long time during that match because I was tired. It didn't stop me. Uh, trying as hard as I, I, I did in latter years. It was exactly the same. It's just that I, I wasn't, because my fitness let me down, it was one aspect that uh, made it more difficult for me. So when I got fitter, I knew that that wasn't going to be, I have, wouldn't, I knew that I could, I could last the matches. I, I get tired like anyone else, but I could recover quickly because of my added fitness. So that's, that was the thing that now I, I don't have to worry about so much, you know. Yeah, um, a pre a pre I used to think of it as a prerequisite to play the game. Now I need to be that that get that, that fitness level, and then I'd have to worry about that aspect of the game. Yeah, and then and then shining a light on well, it's really interesting to hear that that you felt that even though you might not have been at your physical peak fitness, your mind was still strong. There was still this belief, would you say? And and how were you? You know, you you say you were able to see things in the game or have that conversation with yourself. Did, was there any pre-preparation to that or did you just find that in the moment you, your mind went to a good place and you could analyze? Can you talk on that? No, I did. If, I was, if I was losing and I was down, automatically I'm looking to ways to fix it. For example, if I'm, I'm hitting a boast in, on the court and I see the ball doesn't bounce, second bounce on the other side wall, I might overhit it a bit, you know, it might come out. I automatically adjust the angle that I'm hitting the ball in the wall next hit. So I make sure it will die on the wall, you know? So I'm always thinking of where the ball's finishing, what I'm doing. So I'm quite conscious of those sort of things that are happening, you know? Mm. Um, there were some things I didn't understand enough about. I didn't really understand about playing drop shots effectively, how to kill the ball. And it wasn't until I worked with Rodney Martin as a coach that he was really working with him. I worked out from him, really. He gave me the, the information, well, how in the hell do you, do you kill the ball, Rod? And, I, and he, he virtually showed me, oh, you just do this and this and this and bang, yeah. like that, <laughs> and show me. So that was a revelation to me, and I wished I'd done that more when I was playing. I, I worked like anything on my, on my technical side of it. My forehand was always a bit weaker than my backhand, so I was trying very hard to, um, to try and make it better, as good as I could at the time, but it was always a bit of a a letdown at time because I can't, couldn't always get it right or yeah. good enough. But no, but I was always aware of what was on the court. I knew that I, I couldn't do that. So I wouldn't really, you know, I'd make sure I could get around it in, in, in other ways. That's how I used to play, you know. Yeah, and, and, and the way you speak about that, it, it does sound quite a, a natural thing to do. And, and you see players, you know, in any sport and any pressure, they, they have that head explosion, things go. And, you know, you alluded to Hidi Johan there, um, you know, talking about that he got a bit grouchy and a bit upset. And maybe maybe that was his, he wasn't able to see it as clear-headed as you in those pressure moments. And that's where, you know, maybe sports psychology has come in a bit. And, and as you said, helped players to understand coping mechanisms for when that red mist starts to rise and correct me if i'm wrong but but there was sports psychology back when you were at your peak playing it wasn't really a thing was it no not really unfortunately we didn't really have access to that and and that that was when i first took on the job of coaching with the australian Institute of sport i virtually had sports psychology down i was had i was lucky to have access to a sports psychologist to work with and I put him on the bottom of my list of uh, people and consultants that I really needed. Okay. That was the first year. The second year, I had him at the very top because I realized that everyone didn't think the way that I did. 
you know, they were, there were all sorts of different people. And, and I always imagined that most people would think much the same as that I did, you know, and I got a bit of a shock to find out that wasn't quite the same. Yeah. Um, even though I knew that some people would get upset like hitting at time, but, uh, and, and I've worked with psychologists who made a huge difference to people, being able to get them to focus well on the court, you know, mm. you know they're, they're scared. You get, you know, some people uh, get very nervous before they play. And I can remember myself, I didn't really get that nervous. I, I, I go to the toilet with a nervous <laughs> quick visit to the toilet <laughs> before I started playing, but I never really had nervous except on one match I remember playing when I got very, very nervous. And that was my first ever final of the British Amateur cha Championship when I played uh, Aftab Jawaid. And the first game, I was so nervous, I couldn't function properly. Oh, wow. right? So I realised now that I can understand after having that, what people would feel like under those circumstances. And I lost the game nine love as a consequence. Oh, wow. Okay. But then I, then I settled down after that. I was all right after that and I ended up winning the match. But, but that's what made me realise, you know, I was out of control really. And I, Luckily for me, I never used to get into that situation very often. I was lucky that I was able to, you know, most, mostly have control of, of, of what I was thinking, doing on the court, really. Yeah, I, I definitely want to explore your, your journey in the AIS in a little bit and, and that whole, you know, evolution of, of, you know, sports psychology. But staying with your career a little bit, it, it may be hard to pick this because of, of what you've succeeded. But would you be able to relive some of your more special moments and matches in your career and, and what they meant for you? Oh, look, I've had, a, you know, so many different uh, encounters, you know, with people like, uh, I mean, some of the most vivid ones are the ones where you don't, aren't successful at. Yeah, <laughs> For yeah, example, um, <laughs> i never forget against Jonah once. I got, when I finally got myself fit again, I, I had a trouble with, um, you know, electrolyte imbalance in my body and okay. I would tend to cramp in long matches. And I, got, I was playing Jonah in the final of the British Open, and I'll never forget this because I was down, I think, um, I, was, I was down two games to one, and towards the end of the fourth game, which I was winning, I could feel myself starting to cramp. Mm -hmm. So I knew at the end of, in, the, in the end of that game, I had maximum 10 minutes of play left in me before I was going to cramp up all over because I, I, it was, a, it was a, not a nice feeling. I knew that was coming on. So after winning the, the fourth game, I went as hard as I could to try and win in five minutes, you know, as quick as I could. I got to seven love in the fifth by doing that. And then I cramped completely all over and I couldn't really, I mean, I continued the match, but I was cramping, my quads were coming in and out, my hands were cramping, you wow. know, so it was a, a terrible feeling and I, I could, couldn't do anything about it. So that was one of the most frustrating experiences I've ever encountered. Yeah. And, and at that point, did like, you, I assume you lost the match in net nine, seven, did you? I did, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know I had a choice to, you know, other times, I mean, probably one of my most memorable matches against um, Jahangir Khan, the last British Open that I won. And that was, a, you know, I remember that quite well, you know, that match was a very, very difficult match for me to play. He was, for a young person, you know, he, he was, he wouldn't give up either. He tried every inch of the way right through until, it wasn't until basically in the last game, which happened to be the fourth game, as it turned out, where I felt him actually uh, start to tire a little bit, you know, and that was after two hours, wow. which, you know, so I, I never forget that match. And I remember at one stage in that match, I was so tired. I tried something I'd never tried ever in a match before. I was so tired. I've got to have a rest. I, I've got to get myself a bit of, because if he was going to win the fourth game against 
me easily. I thought mentally he would come in and be confident in the last game and can roll me over quickly, perhaps. So I thought, I've got to try and stop that happening. So I'm going to try and rest up for a few rallies. And I just decided to um, hit the ball slowly and softly and try and keep the ball on the walls and things and not give him anything that he can really attack me off. Yep. Just for three or four rallies, I thought, until I feel a little bit better. Then I'm, then I'm going to up the pace a bit so I can actually now start to um, put the pressure on him again and win a few points. Well, funny enough, I had the rest and everything. I think at that stage, I think he thought that I'd, I was gone. You know, I wasn't gone. I was just trying to re- recover a bit. And then I upped the pace. It's not that noticeable when you watch the game, but for me, I could feel it. I was up, and that's when I noticed as soon as I upped the pace a bit, he wasn't quite getting to the balls the same. And that made me realise, well, hang on a second. I won one or two. I said, I, can, I, I know I can win it. Win this. I'm not going to go for a fifth. I know I can win this game now. You know, that was the way I felt at the time. And just pushed, put, you know, just pushed and made sure I kept that pace up. As tired as I was, I still had, uh, you know, enough energy that I could actually do that till the end of the match, you know. Yeah, that's why it's brilliant insight to be able to just flex a little bit and mold and then be able to see that sign and then bang, put that pace back on and come in. But I was going to touch on Jahangir Khan a little bit because you were, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were coming towards the end of your career and he was, you know, 17, 18. What was this like, you know, where, where you know, the, the young, you know, not young pretender because he became, you know, an amazing you know player in his stats. Can you talk a little bit more about what you, what you looked to do when you were playing Jahangir when he was younger and possibly would you say he was fitter than you at that age or not? I don't think he was fitter, but he had a different style of game. I mean, he was an exceptional player when you, when you look at it now at that age. I mean, I saw him come through and when he started, first came onto the scene, it didn't take him long before he's been his compatriots, you know, like come as a man and that. And that, that was a good achievement because those guys were, you know, quite difficult. But it, funny, when he, at that time, I was able to, I'm not sure what the reason was, but I was able to get on top of both Maui Buller and come as a man quite relatively easily you know I was winning the matches without too much trouble at that stage and then comes Jahangir and he he just knocked them off as well he was playing good enough to beat them as well so I knew that there wasn't much in it you know from my point of view he's going to be good and difficult to play and he turned out to be that he was a very attacking player Jahangir you know got in the ball hit the ball hard you know and um, oh he a very difficult player to play you know because Again, I had I had certain tactics I worked out to play against him to help mm. and try and nullify that that hard hitting attack in his game. Almost used to feel like you know, as soon as he started to really hit the ball hard, I was, I was just weathering the storm. I used to I used to say to myself, you know, come on, you're going to weather the storm, go with it, you know, and and try and get through that period where he's really and he's going to ease up a little bit sooner or later, hopefully, and and then I can then make and then I can counter attack a bit and get back into it. That's the way I was th- used to think playing against him. He was a yeah. extraordinary player, and and of course he went at that stage. He was quite fit. I think I think I was very fit as well at that time. I think my standard of fitness was as good as it ever been. Okay. Physically, I was I was probably as good as, and I think playing squash was as good as it ever had. So I think I was at my peak at that time even though I was 34 years of age or 33 or when he came on, I still felt that was, I was in my prime then really. And I still felt that I had a, a lot more to go. And, and, and I was very disappointed when injury, unfortunately, curtailed my ability to play on. And that was the most frustrating thing to me. I really wanted to keep playing, but it wasn't to be. And um, that, that was a sad way for me to finish. But yeah. from, from my point of view, because I felt, look, you know, he's, 
you know, he's a challenge, you know, I, yeah. I, I want to try and see if I can get on top of him. You know, that was, that was, a, that's a feeling I had. And I think we had, you know, a number of matches where, you know, he won half of them, I won the other half. And he was always going to be difficult to beat, but I thought I was trying to work out tactics and ways to play him, you know, that I could actually get on top of him. That's the way I used to take, the, that's what I did with the, with the other boys like Maui Buller and, 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 uh, and also um, Kamazaman. I worked out ways to beat them, you know, yeah. in the end. I was trying to do the same with Jahangi, as, as difficult it might sound and really difficult, but I don't know, I was going, wanted to try mm. and see if I could do that. And uh, unfortunately, I did a few times, but I, it wasn't, at the, you know, I wanted to continue on and, and win more. So can you talk a little bit more about that in regard to how many years you were competing with him? Was it a couple of years? And then I believe it was a back, yeah, in, yeah. back yard, was it? It was only a couple of years I competed with him, yes. Yeah. And was, was it your back that let, let up? Was that the injury you got? Yes, all of a sudden, uh, playing in a tournament at um, Stockton on Tees, I was playing against um, Kamazaman in the semi finals. I ran up, did a backhand shot, put my left foot out onto my left leg. I used to use my left, or the, people used to say the wrong leg. I never called the wrong leg, a different leg to what some of them would use up in that front backhand corner at times. Mm -hmm. I went up there and my back just gave way and I fell on the ground, you know. Oh, wow. And that was it. And it stayed like that then after that. I, I couldn't really put weight on that back, on that leg very well. I had, did have an injection. went to saw one of the Harley Street uh, uh, physios who put injection in my back because I wanted to get ready and play uh, in the British Open that year. And I ended up playing Chichester mm -hmm. in which I had the injection in the first round. And, I, and that was okay. I didn't feel it through the first round. But after the first round in Chichester, boom, it, it, it it actually uh, manifests itself again. I, I had even trouble even walking down to the court. Oh, I went, we used to stay in a hotel. It, it took me 15 minutes to walk from the hotel to the courts because I just couldn't. Hmm. I was struggling a bit. Once I warmed up, I could actually run around a bit enough, enough to be competitive against the boys. In fact, that was a funny thing because I ended up playing against uh, Jahangir in the final and uh, I, beat, I lost... Um, I only got eight points, I think, in the whole match. But it took him an hour and a half to beat me. And <laughs> yeah. that made me realise, well, if I can stay in the court for an hour and a half and I can't run really fast, I've got a good chance of winning the British Open. I really wanted to, to play it. But in the end, further advice, I decided it, it was my back that went on me. Mm -hmm. But then I also had bad, the hip joints were also part of the process. And ultimately... Um, I had both my hips resurfaced, as did oh, wow. Jonah Barrington, and that made all the difference to me physically after, you know, that was obviously a number of years later, which I had that done. In fact, I've had them done 20 years ago. It's been the greatest thing I ever had done because I've been able to live a normal life uh, in, in recent years. I can do whatever activity I like and I'm not in any pain. So that. I can't ask for much more than that, really. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, it sounds like, obviously, we, we're aware of, of your, your injuries, of Jonah's, you know, and, and the physical training you guys used to do back in the day and, you know, your evolution and, and, and the way you've stayed within squash, you know, throughout the years from AIS through to Aspire. So in reflection, obviously, I don't say obviously, but, but the sports science behind your training wasn't necessarily there. And do you think there was that natural link between getting injured and the training that you did? There's no doubt about that. I mean, I wasn't flexible enough. I didn't have the right flexibility. I probably didn't have the right muscles um, uh, strengthened. Even though I did some strength training and I, I did a fair bit of running, um, yes, I, 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 
in high, what I tried to do ultimately as a coach, you know, because I think, you know, when you're, when you're playing squash and you're doing big stretching out and you're lunging at the same time and then you're twisting as you're hitting, it can put a lot of pressure on your body. And so my goal after that was to try and teach people to run quicker to the ball, mm-hmm. um, not lunge out as much, and don't go through your maximum flexibility range when you're trying to hit the ball. That way, you know, stop these big lunging things that we used to do a lot. So I tried to change the, the way I would actually coach squash um, and at the same time get people more flexible so they, so they did have a better range of movement without putting more pressure on the joints. That's what, what my philosophy was. Whether I'm right or not, I don't, you know, I don't really know, but that's what I thought was one of the reasons for it. And I think... Number one, it makes a difference in trying to attack when you can get in better position anyway. Mm. Um, it was probably one of my failings that I didn't, I, I, I didn't always get in good position. I, you know, I do take lunges and be a bit more vulnerable position and therefore you can't control the ball as well. So that let me down, I think, personally as a player. And I tried to, tried to it's a bit like, you know, don't do as I, I did, do as I say, <laughs> you know, which is a bit uh, funny, I know, when you think about it that way. But... Um, I was trying to lead by example in other ways, but certainly trying to teach something slightly different to the way that I was, I was, I was approaching it myself as a player. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, of course. And just, just hearing you say at, at that stage of your career that you were that as fit as you'd been, you knew the game really well, and it would have just been brilliant for, say, another three to four years, you and Jahanga going head-to-head battle. You know, I'm sure you think about that and reflect and go, oh, it would have been such a sweet spot to be able to do. But um, maybe maybe just um, changing tracks a little bit to to your coaching now, and you we, we talked about the AIS. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you joined the AIS um, as the head squash coach in, in the late 80s. Is that is that rights and timelines uh middle 80s it was 1985 in january i started off and um yeah that was i i I would i was out of squash um well out of um coaching field i worked for stella sporting goods for a number of years uh, for a couple of years before that and then the job came up as the first that's when uh, the squash was included in the australian Inter sport program and it was based up in in queensland and i decided to take on the role Number one, because interesting role. Number two, I was interested still, you know, in squash. And number three, it was in a much nicer climate. (laughs) So uh, I thought the three of them together. uh, And uh, so I moved up and did the job for many, many years. You know, I stayed on here for, you know, I was a head coach for many years before I decided it was probably time I I, I stopped, you know, know, let someone else come in with different ideas and things. And I had some good coaches work with me over the years. 
I had Ken Isco. I had Heather Mackay, which was pretty good. And then, then of course, uh, as a scholarship coach, I had a number of different scholarship coaches come into the program. Probably the one that um, most people still know is is Rodney Martin, who came in as a, uh, at that time, unfortunately, his career is curtailed because of an injury to himself that he had. And that really was sad, but he was able to inject a lot into the program and helped me enormously and and uh, and I really appreciate the time I spent with him coaching in in that role. Yeah. So your time at the AIS, you know, some amazing players came through there, and and we might relive some of them at some point. But when you got into the AIS at 1985, <clears throat> I'm I'm looking at you know the the sports psychology side and maybe the physical side. So you said you were introduced to a sports psychologist. Initially, he was low on your list, then he went really high on your list. Can you reflect on that and, and, and what, what that sports psychologist brought to the party and how it helped you as a coach as well? Well, I mean, uh, he was able to, you know, teach the players different techniques and things to be able to, you know, do, do things that I didn't really need, realize you needed to know, you know. So he taught me quite a lot about uh, the way to go about things. And uh, the, the, the sad part about it all and working with a psychologist, people that have got issues that I think a psychologist would help tend not to want to have a psychologist because it's almost a funny thing. And, you know, when you're talking about your mind and people trying to help you change attitudes and, and the way you're doing stuff, um, people are a bit reluctant, you know, to get involved. And that was the saddest part. And, and at the end of the day, you know, my role was to try and motivate people and try and help them and try and encourage them to go and see the sports psychologist when they had an issue that I thought they might be helped with. And, I'm, and I saw the psychologist help a number of the players within the program over a period of time, but he could have helped a lot more if they had let, let, them, let it happen that way. So, no, I, I, I enjoyed my time working with the sports psychologist and, um, you know, it taught me quite a lot about the, the, the game that I really was a bit naive to, I suppose. And it, it's so interesting when you reflect back in you know, the 80s and even the 90s, it was quite, it was quite taboo, wasn't it? Sports psychologists, oh, you must have a weakness in your game or you know, there was this, almost this association there, do you think? I think that's what players used to think. You know, you know, didn't want to show any vulnerability, I suppose, and, yeah. uh, and very reluctant to do it. And um, yeah, that was sad that, that people, people did that. But those that embraced it were, could be helped enormously, provided they, again, accept it and go along with it. You can't, you know, you, but you've got to, like anything else, you can't tell someone to do that. They've got to want to do it and they've got to accept it and go with it. Yeah. Mm. And, and you see most modern sportsmen today and in all sports, they're actually quite proud to say they're working with a psychologist. They're going, yes, I've got this person in my team. So hopefully these type of conversations we're having and, and the more people accept that, that it's actually a good thing. But I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's that person's got to be willing to step through the door themselves as well. If, you know, you could take that horse to water, but you can't make a drink in that sense. Um, so when you'd work with the psychologist, what, what do you think, obviously you're on court, you're hitting balls with people, you're, you're motivating them. Can you think of any examples of how your coaching maybe changed a bit or how you spoke to your players in a slightly different way? Was, was there anything that you were able to, to, to bring to your players because of that? Look, there's lots of little things that used to happen as a consequence of working with a sports psychologist. And um, I wasn't there just to, I, I didn't say, well, it's your baby and you, you, you know, all yours now. And don't forget, a lot of the stuff they would help them with wasn't necessarily on the court related. Okay. It's off the court and other, uh, it's relationships and getting in the right frame of mind to play and, 
preparation. There's all sorts of areas that they can be helpful. So it's not just isolated to, you know, on-court stuff uh, all the time. So, yeah, so I, I, that made me realise that the differences, the way people think and, and what to do and the value that you could actually have by um, having them be involved in the outside of the court life, you know, mm. to be happy with what they're doing, trying to be, you know, imagine living away from home. A lot of them used to be, they come to the AIS and they're you know, 16, 17 years of age, 18 years of age, never lived away from home. Suddenly they're living with a group of people in, in either a, some type of house or whatever environment. That's mm. not easy, you know, and no. so they're going to be able to deal with that. And that was also a challenge for the, a lot of the players and for me as well, to try and make sure that ran as smoothly as I could. Mm. It didn't always do that, of course. Yeah. And um, we did have issues at time, but that's just the way it went, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, of course. And, um, and looking at the physical side and the evolution. So, you know, working at AS, I'm, I'm sure you, you got some really high level personal trainers. I don't know if they were called that um, when you were there, but can you talk a bit about that evolution of, of, of smart training methods in regards to the physical side? I think the biggest area that, that, I, that I learned, uh, that I work with, I work with a very interesting character in, 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 in Australia called Ian King, who was strength and conditioning coach. He introduced a lot of areas to me that I was, you know, I didn't understand enough about. And um, I eventually became a level one and level two strength and conditioning coach under his tutelage, ultimately. But, you know, he taught me the value of recovery. And I think that was the biggest thing that I didn't understand. You know, these guys... You know, you're training very hard at times and you're doing high workloads at times is how you can manage and how you can, you know, change the volume of training and the intensity to do certain things and the way you can manipulate uh, through your training regimes. And I found that most interesting, you know, and I, uh, to such an extent that I, I went back to university and did exercise physiology at university, you know, just is, is, is one of the subjects, one of the year just to understand a bit more and a bit of physiology because I needed to understand a bit more about what was going on. And um, I found that that was probably the most critical thing was the recovery from training and how you can actually still put a huge amount of effort in your training, but you do it a bit more sensibly. So you, you're not fatigued. Cause I mean, we, I've had, I had, I think one of the boys ended up getting a stress fracture in his leg eventually because he just obsessive about training wouldn't stop for hell no high water. And unfortunately he ended up with a stress fracture in his leg yeah, but he was very motivated, to, you know, and uh, you know, finding a way to stop people going down that path was not easy at times because they're the ones you want. They're going to train as hard as they can, but you yeah. need to be able to maintain that training level or and make sure you have inbuilt training periods or low periods of of training that enable you to mm. to then recover and and get the most benefit out of the training. Also, to prioritise certain aspects of the training in terms of certain times, you know, whether you're going to prioritise strength, flexibility, or, or yeah. anaerobic or aerobic training. You know, it's just a different way of thinking about things, which I never really thought about. I used to go that and I'd go running nearly every day and do different forms of training. And through trial and error, I worked out what worked and what didn't work to some extent. You know, I used to see what some of the middle distance runners used to do for, for training, you know, which is a bit like squash in terms of dur durability and things and what you're doing. So yep. um, I was probably lucky I did lots of stuff, but again, I didn't do the right recovery work. Um, I used to let my body tell me at times, I'd go down to a training session. I wasn't obsessive. If I, if I, I went for a run, for example, or was doing some intervals, I'd, if I ran the first interval and I couldn't get anywhere near the time that I was, I'm used to running, 
I'd have two goes at it. And the second one, no, I can't get, I know that I'm too fatigued to do it that day. You know, right, I yeah. was almost at the stage of overtraining by that stage, probably to mm. feel like that, but I couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, even sometimes I tried going back in the afternoon, maybe have a rest and up and go back to the afternoon, but still couldn't do it in the afternoon, which made me realize that no, my body is fatigued and you need to rest. But the funny thing was, it wouldn't take me long before I recover normally and get back. I might be able to do it the following day, you know what I mean? So that's, yeah, that's, that's just the strength and conditioning coaches talk about that red zone, I think, you know, like, like, mm -hmm. it, like knowing before that point of you going out and trying it to be able to kind of stop at that point. And we hear of Jonah Barrington's Bomber Harris days. I'm sure you, you, you did you come across yeah. Bomber Harris back in the day? Yeah, he was training. He was there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was nuts what he used to go through with old Bomber Harris and that by the sounds of it. Um, but well, there have been a few players like that have been, you know, overtrained, you know, mm -hmm. continue. They think that you need to do, and they read, I mean, an example, that one of the fellows that overtrained, I think, was Gamala Wad. I don't know who told him, but he was training. He would ask Jonah what he did for training. He'd ask me what I'd do for training. He'd try and do all of it together, you know. So, And he would certainly overtrain at times. So you, and also, just because I can do a certain volume of training doesn't mean to say that someone else can. And I, I think I had um, a fellow called Jeff Williams, top English player, come and, and stay with me and train with me for... I think he was only there for three weeks. And I, I, I said, you know, he trained with me and ran with me and did the sort of training I was doing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he, with all the training and the running he did, he overtrained and he couldn't handle it, that workload at that stage of his fitness development. Mm -hmm. He had to have a few months off because he couldn't, you know, he, he overtrained at the time. Yet I was able to handle it because I, I suppose I built up to it over a period yeah. of time. Mm -hmm. I just didn't suddenly go into a high, high volume of training. I built up the volume and I build up in, uh, in a different way to make sure that I, I could do it. And I used to know how physically I felt. I, mm. It's not very scientific, but for me, that's the way I used to, used to find I could do it. You know? mm. And having a little look at, at some more of those players that came through the AIS, and, and I wonder if you could run through some names with me, but correct me if I'm wrong, players like David Palmer, Stuart Boswell, Anthony Ricketts, Sarah Fitzgerald. Can you, can you reflect on a few of those players and some players that come to mind where you go, yes, they, that you could see something in them early on, whether it was the mental toughness or the physical side or, or that drive that you maybe had. Could you reflect on a few of those for me, please? Well, the first year in the Institute was quite interesting because, you know, there was Rodney Martin, there was Rodney Isles, um, there was Austin Adaraga, Philip Lama, um, and in the girls you had, uh, I don't think whether Sarah was the first year, it was Michelle Martin and Sarah Fitzgerald almost in the first year. I can't remember if it was in the first year or not. That was a hell of a lot of talented group of, 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 of players to have in, in your own, you know, Wow. And then the following year, there was Anthony Hill came in, there was Adam Shriver, and then um, Craig Rowland, who ended up being, yeah. being quite a good... David Palmer, I didn't have as much influence on. He's had his own coach in, in, in Joe Shaw, who did a lot of work with him, and he, he had his own uh, way of training and thinking and doing stuff. And I we tried to help David and, and did, did help him a lot. I think, I think we taught him the value of recovery and how to get over because of... Uh, injuries and you know how to prevent injuries and things so I, did, I think we helped to some extent with him but I had more to do with the all the other players I mentioned before that rather than David and um, so oh look it was a, a special time I suppose in in Australian squash history when you had so many good players there were so many local tournaments here you should have seen the quality and we, that, that didn't even include at that time 
um, Chris Robertson who was around and he was he wasn't in the in the program in the early days because he went to England initially um, and wasn't going to be around to train and um, he used to come back and have a hit with the with the guys because he lived in Brisbane anyway so at least he was still around a bit but, but he wasn't part of the institute program mm-hmm. and you had people like you know Ditmar who was a pretty solid strong player we really had, we didn't really have much to do with Ditch you know over the years he had his own coach and set up in South Australia but um, oh no it was an interesting time really and um, uh, I look back with a lot of fond memories of, of my time with all the different players yeah. <laughs> and the challenges we had overall it was it was you know we, we, we would get in the bus and drive around Australia and playing some of the, the tournaments at times it was had a bit of fun at, at the same time it was it wasn't all just you know hard yakka that was an interesting group of people you know <laughs> Yeah, it sounds amazing. And, that, and those names you've rattled off, you know, they really etched their names in, into the squash history books. And when, when you're working with them, what's, um, what, 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 well, firstly, did they exhibit signs themselves of that drive? Or do you think the environment you created assisted that drive and that motivation as well? I think the whole setup in the Queensland in particular, um, it was almost like a natural selection process of who was going to get in because, the young, there were a lot of weekend, every weekend there was a local tournament in Queensland, somewhere along, along the line. So all the Queenslanders that were in the program had access on a weekly basis to competition. And the juniors used to come up against the seniors in, in those competitions. They, they used to have just open grades. Mm. You could be a 13-year-old and you're playing a senior, you know. So what's tended to happen in more recent years, it was always, it's been all more or less, I suppose, uh, age group orientated rather than standard or, or, or which is what this other one's. And there's, and there's a, there's a, there's a reason to have both, to be honest, but at that time, you know, there were very few real junior tournaments that were notable. They all played all the senior tournaments. They played pennants. And so these, these guys, you know, were already playing tough matches against good senior players as a young as a young person they developed their skills very very quickly and amongst themselves a huge rivalry amongst them and to me it was all set up just because of the infrastructure of the way that the squash was set up in around the place it was it was just fortuitous that that was the way it was which was terrific really yeah you know my role was to try and enhance what they had already and I knew that yeah, I could see the, the various talents. They had these, these players and they're all different, you know, so all had different attributes and some of them were, were, you know, were fabulous in the way they could, uh, you know, hit the ball. Other ones that had other attributes were, were terrific. And unfortunately in the Institute, we didn't always get it right in terms of the selection process because you always might leave someone out. <laughs> um, and most in the early days, a lot of the players, as I say, came from Queensland. There were some good Victorian and New South Wales players as well, which, added to the, you know, the Institute program, but there was, um, Queensland was where at that time it started out really. Yeah. And you could almost take that model that, that you'd produced and transport it into Egypt. Now, you know, you look at, look at the culture that the Egyptian players are, are produ- well, the players they're producing, but when I've spoken to a few Egyptian coaches and players, it, it sounds like they're learning on the job. It's almost, it's almost yeah. they're absorbing, <laughs> absorbing the environment. Would, would you, would you, if you reflect on the Egyptians, would you say that's a similar model then or not necessarily a model? Definitely. Definitely. And I think what's good about Egypt as well is the fact that they've had a number of coaches or ex players go back into coaching and, and look, people learn by uh, watching, you know, as much as anything else, not, 
I can say thing, but it's often what they what they pick up from watching what goes on that they end up getting better, you know. And I saw the Egyptians had some good technical uh, coaches or people that were good at doing, but the fact they're on the court, they're watching what was going on. Kids learn that way very quickly, you know. And you know, they, you know, I know my son learned a lot from TV as well. He had good coaches, you know, to help him get the fine tune all of that. But you know, he started hitting the ball in a certain way by just watching the TV, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, that's what happens. Kids, kids, kids live, learn in different, different ways, you know. Some people are just very visual and they mm-hmm. pick up exactly what they're just watching, you know. It's a perfect example of that would be when I was younger, I used to know um, where a player came from by the way they used to play squash. In, okay. I used to know which state of Australia they would come from. Okay. Can you explain? Well, they've got these funny little idiosyncrasies where, you know, I could tell by the way they'd hit their drop shots, the way they hit their forehand, the way they hit their backhand. I knew where they're from. I could say that he's, he looks like someone who comes from South Australia. He looks like someone from West Australia. Awesome. It was quite easy to see, really. It wasn't that difficult. Yeah. Uh, yeah it wasn't like I had a, a, a very observant, you know, <laughs> eye, uh, brain. It was just that, that I could see it standing out very easily, you know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I saw one recently, I think it was on, on one of the social media platforms. There was this seven-year-old girl um, hitting forehands, pretty much exactly Roger Federer forehands, just nailing yeah. it. She'd never had a coach. And all she had done, her parents just used to put Roger on TV the whole time. <laughs> Three years old yeah. with this foam rackets doing it. And actually Roger tweeted it because he was like, I can't believe like the, the similarity. Between- <laughs> Maybe that's a little sign that you just talked about. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and we're staying with like the, the modern game a little bit. And, and, you know, you, you've been so in touch with the game for so many years and generations and seen the evolution. Can you comment on the modern game and, and what you think about it? You know, may, maybe it links into the work you did at Aspire with um, Abdullah a little bit as well. So what's your take on the modern game at the moment? The game and the principles of the game have stayed the same. There's very, been very little difference in that. There are some variations because of the... When they introduced the lower tin, it made a bit of a difference to squash mm-hmm. because now the ball kept down a little bit, bit, bit more. And when they had the glass courts as well, that added a different dimension because the way the ball would cling to the wall or mm. dip off the wall, you know, it had a different way of, of handling it. So that's made a bit of a difference. And, you know, I, the principles haven't, haven't changed at all, really. Just that some of the shots are, are, are more prevalent in, in the game than there were years ago. There's a lot more hard, lower kill type shots being played. Yeah. Albeit they used to be a lot years ago too, but, it, but the odd, odd player would play that. Now it's a, more a common theme and everything. So, and to me, it's the game is, 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 is similar in many ways. I think there are a lot of variety of players exactly the same as what there were years ago. I, I don't really think any differently about how to play and what to do on the court really in terms of playing than I did, you know, did mm. you know, years ago, to be honest. Um, so to but, me- yeah, It's the same for the walls, isn't it? The, the dimension hasn't really changed. I know you said the tin and the glass has changed a little bit, but besides that- Yeah, that makes a bit of a difference, but um, you know, getting in position, you know, I've, I've, I've learned things and developed things as things have gone on that, as I told you, I wouldn't didn't do, that Rod, Rodney Martin helped me with as well. So I, that's made a difference to the type of things I'm looking at and doing, but just the modern game to me is the same as the old game. <laughs> no, fair enough. Uh, except yeah. there are a different variety of, or variation of shots. There are some, you know, 
and there's a lot of good players. Probably the biggest difference is a lot of very good players. You know, there's a lot of standard. Decent, the yeah. depth goes down a long way and from many different countries and places, which is really exciting to think that you've got so many, you know, relatively high standard players there. Yeah. Do they hit the ball any more accurately than Jahangir Khan? No. <laughs> you okay. know, so has that changed much? Or, or, you know, some of the other players like Dittmar or Rodney Martin, their ability to control the ball? Not really, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Just there, all those players I mentioned are all different. And, and likewise today, there's some fabulous shot makers amongst the group. Come as a man, he was one of the most skillful players. He had a sort of slight tennis technique. He came from tennis originally, but very difficult to read and very tricky player. He was uh, one of the most difficult players you'll ever come across. You know, there's, mm-hmm. so the, you, know, you see a Rami Oshur and uh, come on the scene, and he was extremely difficult as well to, to read. Mm-hmm. So to me, Come as a man was very similar to that. Mm. slightly different way they play but it was yeah. just that's the, the, the different eras but the game really hasn't changed in terms of um, you know controlling the game controlling the ball being able to hit the ball you know to the difficult areas of the court for your opponent make it hard for them mm-hmm. and um, that, that's what it's all about you know? yeah, I think <laughs> look I, for me there's, there's a little bit of almost sacrifice on the quality and the pace might be obviously it's really high pace as we know but you know the, the quality I, when, when I watch some of those older games and watching you and, 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 and the tenacity up and down the wall the accuracy was a really high thing and you know yes there's accuracy of course in the modern game but is it being slightly sacrificed with pace um, but can, can you talk a little bit about um, Abdullah because he was a really quick player really good mover and that maybe links to your time at Aspire as well. Look, he was a very natural ball player. You know, he's a very natural athlete. He, he's not small in size, but certainly very strong, you know. And at the Aspire Academy, you know, we had, we had some good people working with us as well there. And they helped get him fitter, probably, you know, and, and stronger. And he learned how, you know, some of the things that we missed out on. He had reasonably good flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit, you know, the, the amount of squash they're playing today and the intensity is, is meaning that probably, the, if anything, perhaps there's, they're playing a, a slightly more higher intensity for longer yeah. at times, you know, on the, on the court. And um, so he was, a, you know, one of the most entertaining players to watch. Yeah. Does he play the right tactics all the time? No. <laughs> you know, and, and that's why... You know, he's worked with Rodney Martin for a number of years to try and inbuild in him. He's got the ability to control the ball really well, but it's 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 how you use that ability. And Rod's trying to, has been knocking him into shape with that, and done a very good job of being able to change his game around to the extent that he, you know he he's been very competitive. Even in the you know in the last tournament, I, I went with him at the at the World Championships in Doha, where he you know he. He, he went close to beating Tarek Moman, you know, yeah. so he ended up winning it. So that shows he's come a long way and he's got the ability. Yeah. Um, yes, in terms of, um, um, you know, he, 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 he gets, he's got the typical of some of the Arab temperament where he can be on a high and then he can be on a low and, you know, he can change quite a bit that way. But overall, you know, he tries hard. He wants to win. You know, he doesn't always go about it with the right way to win, but he's, He's learned over the years and done very well. And um, he's still got a lot more to offer, in my opinion, and, and can still go on here. It's been unfortunate that all those players at the moment have had that COVID period of time where they've been out of action. And uh, it's been more difficult for people like him who are more isolated and not, you know, 
I think some of the Egyptians have been able to carry on almost as normal in their own, in their own country because they've got such a good group of players and standard there. It's been a bit more easier for them and, uh, mm. and had a few tournaments there as well. But the other ones have had few and far between and it's much more difficult. So it's going to take a while for the players outside of there to, to get back to a level. But, it, but I still think he's got a good chance of, of getting, going a lot further. Yeah, no, he's, he's an entertainer for sure. And, and the way he gets that ball into the front and moves and his flexibility. But just, just saying one more um, little bit with Aspire. Obviously, you, you talked about his isolation. And how was that for you? Because obviously, come from the AIS, you had this depth of players and, and you could really grow the depth. But in, in Qatar and at the AI, at, at Aspire, was, was that a bit of a frustration to not necessarily have the depth and, and of the players that you could work with? Not really, because I like coaching whatever level, you know. And I was coaching. We we even introduced some boys because um, we only we didn't we did coach some girls in the very beginning, just starting out. But unfortunately, we didn't have a girls program. Uh, uh, didn't continue on. But with the with the boys, I, we started players. I've never played, had a game of squash before. Oh, wow, okay. And that was exciting because you're trying to say, well, how in the hell do we get someone going? Yeah. We've never played, you know, played other sports, but uh, we had we had a bit of success with some of the boys coming on and and getting into it, and that was interesting, you know. And even though the standard was quite low initially, there was still some bit of bit of talent around, you know. Mm. You don't need a lot sometimes, and and with luckily with the amount of effort that the the Aspire Academy put into the various programs, I was able to take them around and compete in some of the tournaments internationally. Now, it might seem while well, I'm you know, taking away players that are not as high a standard, but they got better at it. And each year they were getting better. And some of, they had some really good results, some of the players. And as a consequence, I mean, Abdullah's brother was a very good standard player. There was a, a number of others who, who, who really had a bit going for them. Ultimately, there were half a dozen quite mm. good players that have, have been in the program. So it's not as isolated as you might think it was, you know. And don't forget, you only, you've got to start somewhere. Yep. And... Um, and, they, and we were able to bring in other players from other, you know, jurisdictions or other countries at times to have some practice against them. We were able to go to some places, have some training camps. And that's what the, the Squash Federation did there. Every year they'd have a, a training camp in Egypt or somewhere else. So they were able getting some exposure and, and, and develop reasonably quickly, you know. Mm. No, it's awesome. And, and I think you, you probably don't remember, we really very, very briefly met cross paths. I think you were on your way out and I was on my way in. And yeah, that was the first time I met. And my girlfriend at the time was yeah involved a little bit with the program and that. So yeah, I had fond memories of it. Yeah. Um, oh, well, it's an interesting place, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was amazing to walk around and stuff. And it was, it was a proper like eye-opener for me. But um, listen, Jeff, you've been really kind with your time today. I really appreciate it. But in closing... Um, I did a little bit of research and, and, you know, I remember coming across it a few years ago, but I'd like to hear about the Hunt Squash Accuracy Test. Can you, can you expand on this a little bit, please? Yes. What happened when I was um, in Doha, I mean, we had quality control people working in the organization and we were trying to evaluate players and things. And so I needed to develop something that would actually give me some reference you know to how they're how they're progressing every year in terms of their stroke production the way they hit the ball so i developed a, a pretty static um accuracy test where you're not actually moving much mm -hmm. but basically you're hitting the ball from certain positions and you're trying to control it and it, and it was being verified by the sports scientists that it was a you know authentic uh uh, in some studies, which made it realize it was a true reflection of, of 
of, of how they were progressing or not, you know. Yep. And that gave me a really good idea of how they were going each year because, you know, when you're coaching someone for a year, you don't actually know, notice as much the changes as if you don't see them for a long time. Mm. And um, so uh, being able to get some of those accuracy tests, which, which takes a while, it's a bit of an onerous thing to do, not as easy for a coach to do as you might think. And what I developed in a way that I, I could duplicate it pretty, pretty well. Um, and it, we use it all the time and still using it. I thought it, it was a good way of evaluating the players. And it was quite clear to see that how their improvement was going every year. Yeah. So it was a very valuable tool to help us um, really evaluate how they were going. And, mm. and um, as I say, I think Stuart Bosel continued on with it. And I think even uh, uh, Jonathan Kemp now still uses it. No, that's really cool about the test. I, I did a little research, as I said, and saw there were scientific papers backing it up and, and, and saying, you know, the, the validity of it, which is really cool in that. And I suppose the, the last question I wanted to ask, um, Jeff, from you today is, what are you up to today? Are you, how involved with squash you at the moment? I, I believe you're retired, but, but, but where, where are you at in regard to how you're looking at the game and, and your involvement with it? Look, I still do the odd coaching here, you know, on the Gold Coast, um, not a lot, but I've been doing that. I'm also um, been lucky enough to be invited to a few tournaments to go to and, and, and be at. And I'm still, uh, I work, I did a little bit of uh, work with Squash Australia in terms of I was on the, an advisory committee in terms of their high performance area, though that's no longer the case. I decided not to continue. And um, so from my point of view, I'm still, I still I speak to Abdullah every couple of weeks, okay, cool. <laughs> see how he's getting on and keep there because you know he still gets and coach. He hasn't been to see Rod for a long time, and I'm trying to get him to get out there because that'll <laughs> make a difference to him when he gets starts when Rod puts him through his hoops again. So um, yeah, so you know I'm still open to do some things. I've, I've had been invited to do various things over a period of time, and so I'll still be involved to some extent. You know, I um, went down to Adelaide. Uh, in early earlier uh, last year when they were trying to raise funds for the to get their programs up and running so that was nice and so yeah from I'm still involved in various aspects of the game but haven't gone anything really formal on as far as I'm concerned at this stage so um, just keep an eye on what's going on see the results watch a few of the matches and uh, just uh, play golf other than that <laughs> ask, what, what, what are you then filling your days with so golf is your have you been playing golf a long time is it a more of a recent thing uh i started playing golf pretty much a fair bit when i was in doha you know okay. I, before that i didn't really have much time i'm still not very good but i still enjoy it and it's uh, a bit of fun so I, I you know i play you know probably two two comps a week here on the gold coast sometimes three comps so that's that's, that's pretty good and i that keeps me. I also keep myself do some exercise every day, doing something. And um, one of my loves is bird watching, so I'm out in the bush looking at uh, birds and following them. And um, so that's apart from uh, you know living a nice lifestyle here on the Gold Coast and be able to go down to the beach when I want to. And <laughs> amazing. Oh, well, yeah, it sounds sounds ideal. And and listen, I honestly thank you so much for your time today to to relive some of your memories. We've probably only tiny scratched the surface into some of your events and your World Open titles and your British Open titles and all that. But it's been a real treat for me to go with this bit of investigation with you today and hope you enjoyed yourself as well. And thank you so much for your time. Okay. All, all the best and uh, we'll speak to you another time. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Presence. Process. Persistence. 
the essence of Squash Mind. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.